0: This is the Unraveled podcast with hosts Caleb Arring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to season one, The Nightmare in Ada. In
1: 1984, Tommy Ward had a nightmare. It left him in terror, but the fear he endured during his sleep that night was nothing compared to the living nightmare that started after he woke up.
0: I'm Kayla Baring.
1: I'm Nicole Richards.
0: And you're listening to episode one of the first season of Unraveled. When Tommy Ward woke up from his nightmare in 1984, the real terror began. This season, we will discuss a disappearance that left a small town in Oklahoma in terror, the aftermath of the disappearance, and how one man's dream shaped an entire criminal investigation. In today's episode, you'll hear just the start of the nightmares that permeated Ada, Oklahoma in 1984.
1: Before we get started, Caleb, why don't we talk a little bit about who we are and why we're doing this?
0: Like I said, my name is Caleb Aring. I am based in San Francisco. I'm actually an immigration attorney. I have interned for the district attorney's office here in San Francisco. Nicole, why don't you tell us just a little bit of background about yourself, and then I'll talk about why we decided to do this podcast.
1: My name is Nicole Richards. I'm also based in the Bay Area. I studied criminal justice here at San Francisco State University. I have a history of working within jails in San Francisco County, uh, working primarily with folks that were incarcerated for drug offenses, and working more in a social service arena um, rather than a, a sort of law arena
0: arena like so many people I got hooked on season one of Serial following that case through with Sarah Koenig and then also jumping on to some of the fan podcasts that came out of that there was something about Serial that really got me hooked on the idea of being able to tell a story piece by piece. And I decided that I wanted to make a podcast. I picked this case because I read The Dreams of Ada many years ago, and I learned about this case. I thought that this would be a great case to focus on in our first season. So every season, we are going to choose a different case to unravel. And at the end of the season, you can make your own decision about what really should have happened with the case. As I was putting this together, I thought it would be a really good idea to bring someone else onto the podcast. And Nicole and I are friends, and we've had a number of conversations about the Serial podcast. And so I thought she would be a great person to host this podcast with. Uh, so Nicole, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you decided to become a part of the podcast?
1: Sure. Sure. Like you, I was also a huge fan of Serial. I believe that Serial may have been my, my first introduction to really feeling dedicated to listening to a podcast. I got swept away with that story. I've had a, an interest in criminal cases for a long time. There's a lot of passion there for me, for sure. And we have talked about it at great length, different cases. And and so it felt like an easy thing to come and, and talk to you about something that we love talking about anyway.
0: I think that we really found that that's a deep passion that that both of us share. I'm really hoping those people listening to the show enjoy listening to us have these conversations as much as we have enjoyed having these conversations. (laughs) Let's hope so. So Nicole's brand new to podcasting. I have another podcast that is completely unrelated. If you have feedback for us, questions for us, you can always get us on Twitter at unraveled pod you can tweet me directly at caleb aring you can tweet nicole at unraveled nicole and you can email us unraveled pod at gmail.com and you can also check out our website to get more information and to listen to the podcast directly from the website and that is unraveled pod.com so with that it is time that we let our listeners jump into this case On the night of April 28, 1984, a young store clerk disappeared from a convenience store in Ada, Oklahoma, never to be seen or heard from again. Immediately, the police began searching for her, hoping that they would find her, that they were dealing with only a missing persons case. But when they couldn't find her, the police began searching for a murderer. The police began following up every lead that they could find, and where they eventually ended up was beyond anyone's imagination. Throughout this season, we are going to discuss the disappearance of that store clerk on that April night in 1984, and what happened after that. The twists and turns in this police investigation, and the suspects that the police finally came upon, will leave you wondering what could happen next, and whether or not this case could actually be real life, but it is. Stay tuned with us throughout season one of Unraveled to find out all about this case. And to start us off, before we get too deep into what happened after the disappearance that night in April of 1984, I want to talk a little bit about the store clerk who disappeared. So first, let's find out who that was.
1: At the center of this case is a young woman by the name of Denise Haraway. Denise, as she preferred to be called, was actually born Donna Denise Lyon on August 19, 1959, in Holdenville, Oklahoma. Denise's parents were Jimmy Charles and Patricia Lyon. She had an older brother, Ron, and a younger sister, Janet. So growing up while, while Denise was in high school, she was often described as a student leader with a serious demeanor. She was a member of the National Honor Society and Pup Club. Often described as shy, she was busy and focused from a super young age. Having very little time for extracurricular activities, Denise worked throughout high school at a Dairy Queen that was managed by her mother.
0: So it sounds like she was pretty determined in high school, really hardworking, really focused on her studies and where she was going to go in life as opposed to having fun or or hanging out with friends.
1: Yeah. From all the information that we have on Denise, Denise was very kind of stuck to herself, very focused on her work. People used the example of her high school yearbook and that While there were many pictures of all these popular kids, quote-unquote popular kids, the only pictures of Denise in the the yearbook are the pictures that she had from the National Honor Society and Pep Club.
0: So what did she do after high school?
1: Well, after graduating Purcell High School, she was actually accepted to Oklahoma State University. She did beginner studies there. She was working after classes to pay her way, But after only one semester, the expenses proved to be too much. And she ended up actually moving back home to save money for college. Once Denise's younger sister, Janet, graduated high school, the entire family relocated to Ada, Oklahoma. Here, Denise began taking classes at East Central and working at Love's Country store. She had a couple of different jobs. She was always paying her way through college. So after a couple different jobs, she landed a job at McAnally's convenience store. McKinley's was great because this place actually allowed for a flexible schedule and it, it gave her the time to focus on her studies.
0: And she was actually able to study at work when she was working there, right?
1: Absolutely. It's part of why she had chose the jobs. The other jobs she had had, she'd had these other short jobs and anything to help her pay for her schooling, but she would have to leave them because the jobs would start to impact her studies and her school schedule.
0: And do we know, what was she going to school for? What was her goal with all this?
1: Well, she was actually working on her teaching degree at the local college, so she wanted to become a teacher. So as well as is going to school and working at the convenience store, she was also practice teaching one day a week at Hayes Elementary.
0: Which is, I mean, pretty surprising. I feel like back in the early 80s, you didn't see women often working this much uh, towards a career goal, so it's pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to remember where she, you know, where we're talking. She was uh, in a very small town from a family who didn't come from a lot of money. She had plans for herself. She wanted to become a teacher, a nice solid job, get lots of job security. This is what she wanted to do, but she had to pay her way to do it. You know, there weren't any, uh, college funds. There weren't, there's not a lot of, um, thriving economy. You know, this was, it was like she took the jobs that she could to help her pay for school.
0: Once she started student teaching, it sounds like she was really on her way to achieving her goals. So how was that going for her?
1: Well, I think it was, you know, she was coming into her own. She was described by many as, like, very beautiful, but shy and awkward. Take her student teaching, for example. At first, she couldn't really project her voice to the entire class, just this kind of shy demeanor. But as weeks went by and she began to kind of find her place in the classroom, she could actually even handle disruptions with students surprisingly well. Also, in terms of her employment, Denise was working as as the store clerk at McAnally's convenience store. This store stands alone on the eastern end of town of Ada, and Denise was known to study there like we had talked about earlier. She was there for long periods by herself, often the only person in the store. She was often the lone clerk scheduled, which is great in terms of allowing her time to study and giving her that space, but it also um, was something that was starting to bother her because she... What we know is that in early 1984, she started receiving harassing phone calls while at work. And it even went as far as some people were saying she was talking about acquiring a firearm out of concern for her safety.
0: But it seems like it wasn't it wasn't so serious that she quit working there or asked for only daytime schedules or anything like that.
1: No. I think I think what overrode the fear was that it allowed her time to study. Her bigger focus was school. That was the thing that kind of trumped everything else. She wanted to pay her way through school to get this teaching credential. And so... The, the phone calls were a new thing. The, the acquiring a firearm conversation, also very new thing. She wasn't so concerned that she was um, looking to quit her job. It was just something that was happening around this time of early 1984.
0: While all of this was going on, she was going to school, she was working, she was student teaching, she was doing all these things to improve her life and to meet these life goals. Was there anything going on in her personal life? Was she seeing anybody?
1: Well, yeah, not only all of this, as you had said, all these things are going on in her life. She was also a new wife. Denise had met Steve Haraway when she and her sister Janet moved into an apartment together in Ada. He was living in the same building. The couple had begun dating pretty quickly, and they were married August 6th, 1983. She married this man, Steve... Uh, Steve came from a prominent family in Ada. His father, Dr. Jack Haraway, was a prominent member of Ada Society, a financially secure family. And though that is where he came from, the young couple actually moved into Denise's apartment and were both working jobs and going to school and paying their way through school.
0: And so what was their relationship like?
1: Well, as a couple, Steve was always seen as the outgoing half of the two of them. He was gregarious and talkative, As where Denise, she was shy, shy, but sweet, very sweet. Denise was liked by Steve's family and friends, though people often stated it was hard to get to
0: know her. And that's probably really because she was so shy.
1: Yeah, she's often described as, you know, uh, they use the, oh, she was beautiful, but, right, but she was shy, a little bit awkward, just kind of not so sure of herself, kind of coming into her own. She's a young woman. Just that shyness that can often be read as, as, as awkwardness, right? But but he was the outgoing one. He was in a fraternity. He had his boys' nights out and would come home and Denise would be home. And it worked for the two of them. From what we know, it, it, it worked. They were that kind of duo where one does most of the talking and most of the socializing and the other one is, you know, that kind of quiet, steady presence in the relationship. So Denise and Steve were working and attending school. They were planning their lives together as young married couples do.
0: So it sounds like as a new married couple, the two of them were doing pretty well starting to build a life together.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And Nicole, since we had the chance to talk to Robert Mayer, the author of Dreams of Ada, who actually talked to a lot of the people who knew Denise... Why don't we cut over to part of that interview and let listeners see what he had to say about her.
1: She was 24 years old. She'd been married only nine months before. She was student teaching at a local elementary school. And I talked to the teacher there, and, and I talked to some of Steve Haraway's friends, and everybody agreed that she was a wonderful person, you know, a happy bride, and, and, um, and she would not, it's not the kind of person who would voluntarily run away, you know, and then never call her family to say where what happened. <laughs> So in 1984, something changed their lives forever. Caleb, why don't you tell us about that?
0: Let's talk about April 28th, 1984. And that day started out like any other day for Denise. And really, most of it was like any other day. She woke up with her husband, Steve, as they always did. And their work and school schedules made it difficult to spend a lot of time together. You know, you mentioned how they were both working. They were both in school. They often didn't have as much time to see each other as a new married couple might prefer. And April 28th was no exception to that. Uh, After they got up, Steve had to be at work at 1030 in the morning. And Denise didn't work until that evening. After Steve left for work, Denise had some time to herself before she would have to go to McAnally's later that day. While she was at work, she was able to take study breaks, like you mentioned. During the day, she also had time to herself where she could study or do whatever else that she needed to do because Steve was gone. He was at work most of the day.
1: So most of their relationship is like that, right? Um, Kind of two ships passing in the night often, it sounds
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like they they had some time together. You know, he didn't have to be at work until 1030 in the morning. So I would imagine that they probably got up and had breakfast together every day and did stuff like that. And the nice thing about their opposite work schedules is that at least they had time to study on their own. So I imagine that they did spend time together when they weren't at work, but definitely... Uh, you know, not as much time as, say, a couple that both work a nine to five and have the evenings together or something like that. It does sound like they didn't have nearly as much time together as I would say probably most newlywed couples, especially, you know, back in the early 80s, had together. So on this particular day, Steve, he left for work at 1030 in the morning And Denise went to work later that day. We don't really know what she did during the day while she was at home before she went to work. You know, if we had to guess, I would say probably studying because that was a big part of what she did. You know, like you mentioned, she didn't necessarily have a lot of friends that she went and hung out with. She was quiet and she was shy. So odds are she stayed at home and and studied or did, did something at home. She was close with her sister as well. At 6.30 that night, while Denise was at work, uh, she chatted with her sister. It was pretty common for her to talk on the phone with her sister and be in touch and and keep up with her. Steve would always get home from work around 7 at night uh, while Denise was still at her job. Denise wouldn't usually get home until 11 o'clock. So that gave Steve about four hours to study, you know, settle in at home or do whatever before they had a little bit of time together before going to bed and, and doing it all over again. So when Steve got home at seven, Denise was still at work. And at 7.30 that night, Denise talked to Steve over the phone. And this was a pretty regular part of their routine because he got home at 7. Somewhere around 7.30, Denise would usually give him a call. Uh, They would chat, you know, catch up on the day or whatever. And on April 28th in 1984, when she talked to him at 7.30, it was just like any other 7.30 conversation that they would have. She let him know that the store was was pretty uneventful, that she had a lot of time to study that night, which was really good for her. And she was able to get a lot of homework done, is what she told him. And that was it. It was a pretty brief and straightforward conversation. And also around 7.30 that night, and we don't know if this was before or after her phone call with Steve. But around 7.30 that night, Denise did have some customers in the store and had to take a break from her studying. Uh, One man stopped by to buy some cigarettes. And there were also a couple of young men in the store at the same time who were still there after that person finished getting his cigarettes. And so that was somewhere around 7.30 that night. And then At 8.30, a regular customer of McAnally's named Lenny Timmons pulled up to the store. And at the same time, in another car, his brother David Timmons and their uncle, Gene Welchel, also pulled up to the store. Uh, They were in two separate cars, and they were just stopping to get some change on their way to somewhere else. So these
1: three pulled in two cars— But the three of them, it sounds like, all pulled up to the store at the same time.
0: Yeah, so they all pulled up at the same time. Lenny is the one who got out of his car to go get change for all of them. And then meanwhile, uh, David and Jean were just waiting in the second car because it just made more sense that way. Lenny got out of his car. He's walking into McAnally's. And as he's walking in, there's a couple walking out as well. And when he walks in... It's one of those stores where it chimes when you walk in to let the clerk know that somebody has walked in or walked out so that uh, the clerk can make sure to be there and um, and help that person. So Lenny walks in, the chime goes off, and he goes to the counter, and he waits for the clerk, who is Denise, although he doesn't know that's who the clerk is. He's just waiting. And he waits a couple minutes, and she doesn't show up. And this is particularly strange because there is a lit cigarette that's burning uh, in an ashtray, and there's also an open beer on the counter. Denise's bag was still behind the counter, and there was an open school book as well. Uh, So all these things led Lenny to believe that wherever the clerk was she must be nearby Uh, particularly the fact that there was a still burning cigarette so because of that he went back over to the door to make it chime make that alert go off again and maybe he thought that you know the clerk heard the chime and thought it was the couple walking out and didn't realize someone had walked in as well Uh, so just wanted to bring to the clerk's attention wherever the clerk might be that there was someone in the store who needed to be helped. Uh, So he made the, the chime go off a few more times, went back to the counter to wait.
1: So at this point, he's waiting, and he doesn't think anything is wrong. He just thinks there's no clerk there, but that somebody had been there very, very recently because we have a cigarette burning, there's an open beer can. Her personal belongings are still behind the counter. But was there anything that eventually tipped him off that something had gone wrong?
0: Well, at that point, it seems like he thinks that maybe the clerk is in the bathroom or in the back or something, right? Because it's clear that the clerk was at the counter right before that. But he's still waiting there, and it's been now more than a couple minutes that he's been waiting. So he starts to get a little bit nosier and leans over the counter to see more of of what's behind the counter, and when he does that, he realizes that the cash register is open and it's empty. And that was really the first moment that he got tipped off that maybe something was wrong. Maybe nobody was going to come and help him because maybe nobody was even there in the store. Uh, he wasn't sure, but he knew at that point that something wasn't right there. So Lenny went out and, you know, like I mentioned, his his brother and his uncle were in another car in right outside in the in the parking lot right in front of McAnally's. So he went out. He got his brother and his uncle, and the three of them searched the store together uh, to try and find the clerk. Uh, but they couldn't find anyone. Uh, so they used the telephone in the store, and they called the owner of McAnally's, uh, the manager of McAnally's, and then they also called the police.
1: So they were able to actually call. And is this due to it being a small town and everybody knows who owns the store or, I mean, I think of myself walking into a store and realizing that the store has been robbed. I can't imagine that the first person you're going to call is the store owner, right? Um, But is that due to where we are, when we are there, 1984, right? It's a small town in Oklahoma. Everybody knows everybody. Is that what it is? Or it's interesting that their third call was the police station.
0: Yeah, I thought that too, and we don't really have information about why that wasn't their first call. We don't really know why the police wasn't their first call, and like I mentioned, Lenny was a regular of McAnally's, Mm. so I think that he, being a regular, probably knew who the owner was, knew who the store manager was, so I'm not sure what was going on in his mind if he thought the store had been robbed or if he thought that maybe the clerk had just taken the money and left i am not really sure what was That's going a great through point. his head right. but it you know either way he knew something was wrong and and after making those first two calls uh, he did call the police so this is the point at which denise harroway is missing and they don't quite realize that yet but they, they were going to find that out soon. Once, once the police got there and once things started to be investigated, they realized that not only was Denise missing, but that they actually may have been the last people who saw her alive. Nicole that is a a pretty intense cliffhanger right there so tell me what are we going to find out on next week's episode
1: next week on unraveled we're going to find out how the search for Denise began the first hours following a disappearance are the most crucial so what happened and what didn't happen in Denise's case
0: Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.